Deep in God's Word is a Bible study for women. Each month, your host, Cindy Colley, will discuss the study highlights and answer some of your questions. You can find more information about the Digging Deep Bible Study at thecolleyhouse.org. Now let's grab our shovels and dig into the meat of God's Word. Welcome to, at last, our month nine Great Escapes Digging Deep podcast. This is month nine. We are in May of 2018. If you're current, this will be archived though so that those who would like to study later can still access it. We are so glad that you're along for the study tonight of our Escape by Faith. We're really glad that we have Flory Barber with us tonight. Flory's been here, have you been here once or twice? Twice. Twice already, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that you've been here since you became the mom to Kennison. No. So now she has a Lee who is, how old? He's eight. He's eight. Wow, it's hard to believe. And then Kennison just had her first birthday. Last month. So we are so happy to have Florian Rafe and Rafe in Huntsville and to have now Ali'i and Sweet Kennison is with us now. And Flory is, she doesn't really know it and she's such a meek and quiet spirit that she would never say this, but she is a great influence on many women at West Huntsville and I'm one of them because she does great things sometimes under duress and never ever toots her own horn, but just consistently seeks first the kingdom, and it is very encouraging to me, and I could say it a million times and still not say how really encouraging it is, but thank you. You encourage me. Well, no. We are very thankful that you're along. We've had a little bit of mic trouble tonight, and if we have some more, just let me just go ahead and tell you now to hang on and be patient, because we will come back if we have trouble. Our uh, tech lady has left the building, (laughs) so I hope she comes back. We'll hope so. But can you all hear us? Just comment if you can hear us. Okay, okay, now it looks like that you're all hearing, so that's good. And hello to Wanda and Vicki and Ann and Lee and Genevieve. We are so glad that you all are along. That is um, great. It's wonderful. And we are going to begin tonight with, uh, I have not fully uh, decided when the next podcast will be, but I will post that very soon so that you all won't have to wait until it's almost time to to know when that is. And tonight, we are just going to begin by Flory leading us in a prayer, and then we'll dig right into Abraham. Let us pray. Holy Father in heaven, you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the creator of the universe, you are powerful and all-knowing. We humbly come before you, thanking you for this life and the beauty that surrounds us. We thank you for all the many ways that you bless us each and every day. We thank you for your word that teaches us and rebukes us so that we may grow spiritually. We thank you, Lord, for this study and for Cindy who put it together, and we pray that you be with her as she writes the next study. We thank you for Jennifer who handles the technology and makes this podcast possible. We're thankful for the examples of many men and women of faith in the scriptures and for their obedience to you. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. For without him, we would not have a way of escape from sin. I pray that you be with Cindy and I tonight, that we speak from your word and we say things pleasing to you. I pray that you... Be with the ladies 
who are doing this study and help us to grow in truth and in knowledge. Help us to recognize and seize every opportunity that we have to do your will, period. We pray, Lord, not our will, but your will be done. We love you and we thank you. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is fitting tonight that we are studying some folks who actually came face to face with death. They had brushes with death as they um, established in the, as they futuristically established and then as they were in the groundbreaking days of our spiritual nation. Yesterday was Memorial Day and we talked about, um, of course, through our media, we, we heard all day about those who had given their lives for our nation, the United States of America. And it is so much more important that we not only remember but learn from those who came face to face with death in the, um, in the prophecy of and in the establishment of our spiritual Israel, our spiritual nation, which is the church today. And some of those people, we're going to be talking about some great faith, even as they were commanded to do very hard things. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 22. And you told us in the Bible study earlier that you tried to substitute. Tell us about what you did. Um, reading the questions in number one, I substituted Isaac with my son's name, Ali'i. And then I think it mentioned uh, Sarah, and I substituted with Rick's name. Okay, very good. So she, she put her family in this very, very hard command that Abraham received from God in Genesis chapter 22. And so I wanted to try that tonight with my family. And in verse 2, that would read, And God said, Cindy Colley, now take your son, your only son, Caleb, whom you love, and get into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. We skip on down to, I'm going to skip to verse 4. Then on the third day, so I lifted up my eyes and I saw that place afar off. And I said to the young man, you stay here with the donkeys and I and my son Caleb will go yonder and worship. And we'll come again to you. And so I took the wood of the burnt offering and I laid it on Caleb, my son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together. That would be That would be me. And so then... Caleb said to me, Behold, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Skipping, I'm going to skip on down to verse 9. So I, I laid the wood in order, and I bound Caleb, my son, and I laid him on the altar on the wood. And so then I stretched forth my hand, and I took the knife to slay my son. And then the angel of the Lord called unto me out of heaven and said, Cindy Colley, and I said, here am I. Now, I don't want to do a disservice to the Bible because, of course, it was always the men who built the altars, and we understand why. But I wanted to personalize it for you and for me tonight just by making that little substitution that Flory had suggested. And 
it's very hard when I was doing this by myself. It, it's probably a little bit easier now because I'm a little bit more uh, nervous because we're in front of this microphone, but it's very hard to do that without tears mm -hmm. coming to your eyes. In the same sense, many times when I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper, I will try to picture, because we don't know what Jesus looked like, I'll try to picture my son on that cross to make myself understand how God, and I know that he's not a man and his ways are higher than our ways, but still, even from a human standpoint, it's an amazing emotional sacrifice. And we know as Christ cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know how that would feel as a parent to hear our children say that. And, and that's similar to Genesis chapter 22. But what is the verse? What is the verse in Hebrews 11? 11, 19. Yes, and what does that verse say that Abraham was able to do that because of his faith in the power of God? And so read that verse for us. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So this is the little window that we have into Abraham's soul here. And what gave him the strength to put one step in front of the other as he was going up that mountain was that he thought, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. And we wouldn't have really known that without Hebrews chapter 11. But he was, he was in his mind thinking ahead about the amazing power of God. And we're going to see that as we look at David, as we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody knew that if God wanted to provide this way of escape, that they would just go ahead and put all their trust in him. And there are situations in our lives today, don't you think, when we just have to think, I don't know how this is going to come out, but I know that I'm serving the same God who stopped that hand on Mount Moriah. And although he didn't deliver in exactly the way that Abraham thought he would, he delivered. And so does he always deliver in the ways that we project in our own imaginations and think God can do this. No. No. And he doesn't deliver in the ways that we pray. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we pray. Um, and, and there's a, a couple of things that I'm praying about very hard right now. And, and sometimes I just say to God in my prayer, Lord, I can't figure this out. I can't figure out how this could end up, up good. But I am serving the same God. And, and Abraham didn't know. He didn't know how God was going to figure this out. But I'm serving the same God he served. And so I can, in my, it's okay in my mind, if I figure out a way that God could do this, and I think maybe he'll do it this way. That's what Abraham did. But it's not okay if I just say, okay, there's no way this can work out for good. Because that, that's a violation of, of um, my trust in the power of God. And when I think about Romans 8, 28, you know, that promises that good will come for his children from every circumstance. Now, all right, okay, good. We think that maybe we need to replace headphones, so we're good. All right, so we're talking about, about trusting God and about Romans 8, 28. And I, I posted a sermon 
that Caleb preached a few days ago, and I happened to be in Jacksonville when he was preaching that day. And, and I just love the fact that he said, you know, people say, well, how's this going to work out for good? I mean, my mom just died, and I'm 15 years old. Or my baby just died, and this is the only child that the doctors don't think I'll be able to have another child. Or my father is terminally ill, and he's going to be sick for a long, long time, and I'm going to have to look. I don't even know if I can, if I have the physical strength to look after him for many, many months. Or whatever. I just lost my job, and there aren't any more jobs like that, and I'm... 55 years old and no one's going to hire me or you know we could just name a lot of scenarios how's that going to turn out good well I don't know but God provides God knows I don't know but God knows and so that is the um the the weight of Romans eight twenty eight, and Abraham centuries before Romans 8, 28, had that concept in his heart when he walked up Mount Moriah with Isaac. And that's the concept that we're going to see as we study various characters tonight. Do we have any comments about this so far, or or is it all about hearing us? Okay, good. All right, we're going to go now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to be one-handed tonight, so we're going to... We're going to make this work. All right. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, tell us what was going on there, Flora. Um, there was a giant um, mocking God and being defiant, and the people of Israel were just afraid and scared. And David, a shepherd boy who was sent by his father Jesse, um, showed up, and everyone looked at him and thought, who are you to come here and start saying all these things? And uh, the brother, too, Um, accused him of evil and um, David buckled up and said is there a cause you know why are we standing here basically saying that why are you going to let this uncircumcised Philistine do that to us and to our God and so he he decided to to be the one to fight him and so we have this this giant that was 10 feet tall, about 10 feet tall. Um, and these were the formidable Philistines. This was not um, a little camp of unarmed men. This was the Philistines. They were all armed. And this giant was not only armed, but he had an armor bearer in front of him. So, And he was um, really saying some very um, taunting things about the people of God and they were shaking in their boots basically and so David did become discouraged what verses did you put Flory for the discouragement of David Um, let's see Hmm. is that the first question okay Okay. I have 26. The discouragement of David. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? We can hear the discouragement in his voice there. And then we read about his older brother in verse 28 who said why are you here 
And with whom did you leave those few little sheep in the wilderness? He was not taking into account that David had already saved those sheep from a lion and a bear. And David's going to say that later. I know your pride and I know the naughtiness of your heart. For you are come down that you might see the battle. You've come down here as a spectator because you wanted some excitement in your world. Because all you have to do is look after those few little sheep. That's basically what he said. But you have to remember now that Eliab had already been turned down as future king. Remember when... Um, the anointing occurred and, you know, it was said, oh, this must be the one. Look how tall he is. Look at Eliab. This must be the future king. And the answer was, no, no, this is not the one. And the shepherd boy was, David, was called from the field to be anointed as the future king. So we probably have some jealousy going on, some sibling rivalry going on here. And so Eliab said all of those things. And our question was, so which discouragement to David do you think was the greatest at this time? Those of his, you know, his outside of his family they were his kindred israel but they weren't his brothers which which do you think was the most discouraging voice those of other israelites or the voice of his own brother and compare that for us if you can just for a minute to today and let us know what you think about the greatest discouragement to christians today i think um it would be from the brother mainly because they grew up together they know one another and you would think that he would know that David is doing his best to please God or doing his best to defend God, yet he shows up and says, you know, accuses of, accuses him of evil. And in our culture today, I think many people, when someone points out a sin or, like, posts it on Facebook or social media, I think the church tends to think um, that they're being prideful or holier than thou or have an attitude that's haughty when really we're just doing our best to please God. Very good. And it's um it's very discouraging to I, I don't mind at all and and you know not that I am the standard here but I don't mind at all if the world calls me out because I think the world is not going to ever understand Christianity. But when it's my brothers and sisters in Christ who um you know, if I'm doing my best and, you know, you or if you are doing your best to stand for what's right, to stand for what's true, to be in the word and to speak where God speaks and your own brethren are criticizing you and calling you prideful as Eliab did to David, that that's far more discouraging than if it comes from the world. So do we have comments about that? Does anybody have um well, we have an, a comment. We'll get back to those in just a minute. But um, if you have a comment about that, let us know. If you think, if you think differently, let us know. Okay, and that is um, our key verse, isn't it? First Corinthians ten thirteen. So it, that's exactly right. So if anybody has a comment about whether or not you think discouragement is, I know it's tough when the world all around us the world that's serving the devil is attacking us but I just think it's harder when those who are wearing the name of Christ are attacking us because that's family and I think too about Jesus I think about his bre- his brethren James and Judas they they didn't believe that he was 
the Son of God up until after the resurrection. And when I think about that, and I think about the implication of that, that implies that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that they thought he was human, and that they thought he was the product of fornication. And it implies something very bad about their mom. They were saying a whole lot when they were the ones, his own family, that rejected his Messiahship, uh, as it were. They were saying just a whole lot. And um, that is a similar, although bigger, situation than we have going on with David here. But I believe this foreshadows. Uh, David was like Christ in a lot of ways, the deliverer and actually the uh, physical ancestor of the Messiah. So um, I believe that Jesus mirrors David in this way. Do we have any more comments about that? Yes, the most discouraging is our brethren. Amen about discouragement among brethren. Tears flowing hard when your heart is stepped on by family. How can we gently share the need for gentle speech? Well, um, maybe some of you at home have comments about this. It is... um, you know, it's not just the need for gentle speech. It's it's the need for changed hearts. And when those of us who are in our physical families, but I mean especially our spiritual families, when they are um, attacking us for taking the right stand that is aligned with the Word of God, then what we have to do is just lean on God. What we just have to do is go to God and say, Lord, this this hurts, but it doesn't hurt nearly so much as you hurt when you watched Calvary. And I know, Father, that Calvary happened so that I could have the hope of heaven and the trust in you and the promise of Romans 8, 28. Help me, Lord, to be steadfast, to be firm. And then our response when we're under fire from our brethren is calm, it's measured, but never compromising. We never compromise the word in in those kinds of, of arenas. So do we have any more comments? Genevieve Orman, Moses was often discouraged when God's people spoke against him. Jessica Donovan, totally agree. It's so hard when those who are supposed to be like-minded disagree, not with us, but with God's word. That hurts most. Vicki Yeoman, I met my spiritual family, and yes, you are right, it's hard. Okay, all those are great comments. I think that a part of our problem, not all of it, because this is always going to happen, and it's always going to make us stronger. It's always going to challenge us. But I think sometimes, you know, today our problem is poor leadership. Sometimes we really need godly elders who will stand for what is true because you know if you are a faithful member of a congregation and you're speaking out in behalf of right or if you are the preacher or the preacher's family and you're speaking out in behalf of right and you're being taunted for doing that it's a great thing when elders come to the rescue and say we're going to stand with truth we're going to stand for right and aren't those of us who have faithful elders thankful for that blessing because that's an important That's a very important blessing in this arena. It would have been great for David if there had been a king who had who would have come out. And I'm sure he I'm sure many people did after the fact, but nobody before the fact really came out in David's favor and said, we trust you. We know you're right. We're coming in the name of the Lord and we're going to stand with you. So um, David's a great example here. 
Do we have any more comments before we talk about um, today's, um, how, how that David acted to preserve Israel's integrity? And I think we see that in verse 26. And we'll catch up with the comments in a minute. David spoke to the men that stood by him saying, what's going to be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is he anyway, this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David is is, uh, saying, if we don't fight, we're bringing reproach on Israel. If we don't stand for a right today against the moral giants, the immoral giants that are all around us, the unscriptural giants that are all around us we're bringing reproach on our israel which is the church and so if we think about that for just a minute um go ahead florian read verse 46 as well which shows that david was viewing this as a taking away of the reproach this day the lord will deliver you into my hand and i will strike you and take your head from you and this day i will give the carcasses of the camp of the philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And, you know, we're, we're going to get to the question, is there not a cause? That was the key question, too. And that's, I think, in verse 29. Um, so here we have David several times over saying, we got to do this because this guy is making fun of our Israel, and he's making fun of our God. This is not just a an earthly battle. This is a taunting of our God, and we've got to take away the reproach from Israel. So I ask for actions today that might take away the reproach from the church. And I thought of one, and then if you have another one, you tell me, and we'll ask for them from the ladies at home. But I thought of one that I heard the other day at a funeral, as a matter of fact. My husband was asked to preach the funeral of a, of a great and godly gospel preacher, Flavel Nichols. And I attended that funeral, and this was told at that funeral, and I thought this fit perfectly here. Flavel moved to a new town as the preacher of the local church in that town, and as was his custom, when he, whenever he moved to a new town, he went around the square of that town and went in all the businesses. In the, he went to the business district and went in all the businesses and said, I'd like to meet you. I'm Flavel Nichols, and I'm the preacher for the, for the church here. And the people were not receptive, and they weren't friendly to him at all. And finally, when he got to about the third store where people were just they just looked at him and said, well, hello, went went about their business. And one of them, I think, even asked him to leave. You're not welcome in here. So he finally asked someone, he said, why am I being treated so coldly in this town? And finally, one man leveled with him and said, it's because the last preacher left, owing us all a lot of money. Well, that was a reproach on Israel. That was a reproach on that church. And how Flavel responded that to that was... He got out his wallet and said, how much does he owe you? And he paid that debt. And he went to every store in town and made sure that all of that man's accounts were paid up out of his personal account. What was he doing there? He was taking away the reproach from the church. And I thought that was a great example of, of being a David to say, there's a cause here and that cause is bigger than my wallet. And I'm willing to open my wallet and make personal sacrifices in order to take away the reproach. Do we have examples from home? Um, reproach now. Okay, read, read whatever comments we have there. Do we have extra comments? Yes. Um, 
mainly about discouragement. Nidra Rodriguez. It's it is like a man or woman going out in the world to, to work, work, work and dealing with all of that. But then to come home and still have no peace. The world will bring discouragement, but we want peace in the church. It should be our haven. The church should be our haven. Go ahead. Stephanie Kenyon. I think of John thirteen thirty five. He could have said a number of things, but he said, they will know you are my disciples if you, if you have love one for another. Marilyn Russell, if others can discourage me, I need to remember that I can also discourage. I need to be aware of what I am saying that might be a discouragement. Christina Odom, discouragement among brethren hurts, but we need to remember the church is not made up of perfect people, just forgiven people. Very good. And so if you have examples of ways that we can counteract that discouragement and take away that reproach, feel free to share those. Another example of taking away the reproach that's commanded is in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, that church was in trouble because they had a man who was committing adultery with his father's wife. And what was the solution recommended there in 1 Corinthians 5 or commanded? Confront him and then disfellowship. Yeah, withdrawal of fellowship. And so that is God's idea for us to take away reproach when there is complete impenitence in our congregations today. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was David facing anger. What verses did you get, or do you have those about David facing anger? I think that's... Um, verse 28. I okay, think. Maybe verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness I know your heart your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle okay I think I think Eliab might have had a bit of anger in his voice in verse 43 so go ahead and read that one to me 43 so the Philistine said to David am I a dog that you come to me with sticks, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So David faced anger. Have you ever faced anger when you're standing up for what's right, when you're being bold and you think, I know God wants me to say this. Have you ever faced anger? Well, the Collies have. I mean, we've um, been trying to teach the truth for um, together for 38 years. Last week we had our 38th anniversary, and we've been so blessed. And most of the time... Uh, we are so um, blessed, just blessed, to be the recipients of love and and people who are extending the right hand of fellowship and people who are supportive and encouraging. And certainly it's that, that way in our West Huntsville family. But I can remember a few times when Glenn preached the Matthew 19.9, what the Bible says about marriage, divorce, divorce for any cause other than fornication and remarriage. And I can remember some people standing up and calling him names in a room where he was teaching that. I can remember a time when elders actually called Glenn and said, after he had just actually read Matthew 19, 9 to a couple, and this couple had decided that they were in violation of Matthew 19, 9, and they were doing the right thing, but their family members were members of the church, and they were extremely angry. In fact, these elders told Glenn, do not go around 
this man who was in their family because he will hurt you. He is angry enough that he will he will hit you and he will hurt you. I have um, faced folks who have been very angry at teaching about modesty, specifically moms, not daughters, not young women, but their moms get very angry when daughters become convicted about modesty or about dancing and decide that they are going to refrain from those activities. I've had moms who have threatened to take me to court for influencing their daughters to um, to dress modestly. Um, and I don't know how that would actually play out in a court of law, but that was uh, a statement or a threat made in anger. Um, I think that you mentioned a while ago that sometimes we have folks who are angry um, on social media and may say things like, you are arrogant, you're the most prideful person I've ever seen, you're a know-it-all, you are holier than thou when you um, attend. And I'm, I'm not saying that I think social media is the perfect place to teach always, but I am saying that if we're on it as Christians, then as in any of our social interaction, when we get the opportunity, we should stand kindly but firmly for truth in any social interaction, whether it's on a screen or face-to-face. And so many times we as Christians will face anger when we when we stand for what is right. Do we have more comments at this point? Okay, so then Faith's question. Flory, where is Faith's question in this chapter? Verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Okay, so his question here is, what? I can't believe you. What? What? Why? Why are you accusing me? Don't we have a cause here? And I'm telling you what: we, as disciples of Christ, need to constantly be asking that question. Why am I being? You want me to be quiet? Don't we have a cause here? Shouldn't we be standing up? I think that you said that you pictured him <laughs> standing up on a high place and saying, "Is there not a cause?" Yeah. Making himself a platform even and saying, huh, what are you people talking about? Is there not a cause? There's a giant here and we are the people of God and we have God on our side and we're shaking in our boots. Isn't there a cause? Isn't there a reason that we have to defeat this giant? Sometimes um, the world gives us an ultimatum and we just have to say, okay, I can't do anything but stand for truth here and I'm going to do it. So that's what David did here. And when I think about is there not a cause, and I'll do this quickly because I want us to get have time to cover the rest of the, the lesson, but I think that there are some taunting giants in our world today. And if you are thinking of one of those, go ahead and, um, well, let's see. Um, Stephanie. Stephanie says it's a heart problem. As humans, we can harden our hearts when we see people doing the right thing, and we don't want to do it, and we should never get angry that someone is making the right choice. And that's a great comment about, about the anger. And Lavinia said, my husband had a warrant sworn out for his arrest when trying to help a brother get the help he needed with an addiction to prescription drugs. So, you know, these are anecdotal, of course. but And thankfully, we as Christians are, uh, I think today, we are in encouraging times more than discouraging times but and she said this man had two unmarried older sisters and a mentally challenged son and needed physical help 
which we provided. And but I but I do think that um, all of us can think of those times when we have to when we're in this situation like Lavinia is talking about, and we have to just say, you know, I'm going to stand for a right. I'm going to do what I think is uh, following the golden rule, and I'm going to do what I think is protective of souls. And we kindly but firmly push on. So David faced that anger. Then he asked the question, is there not a cause? And today we have some taunting giants in our society today. And I'm just going to mention the four that immediately came to my mind. And then, Flory, if you think of one, feel free to mention it. The one I thought of is the lie that the devil puts out there, the giant lie that evolution, organic evolution, is science. That's a big old lie. And we really have to fight that lie in our homes with our children, especially if our children are being educated in our public school systems. We have to provide the external evidences that will show our children that this is a lie of the devil. And we have to stand up, and our children have to stand up against that lie in various arenas of our lives. It matters what your preschooler thinks about that Tyrannosaurus Rex. It matters if he thinks that it was prehistoric, meaning before man or not, because it matters to his faith in Genesis chapter 1, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It matters what your... uh, elementary age child thinks about the monkeys developing into men that matters it's not something that's to be laughed at but we have to stand up it matters what your high schooler thinks about the fossil record it matters what your middle schooler thinks about the day age theory all of those things matter and so we as mamas today in a world where that is a giant taunting us we have to get our facts together and say, is there not a cause? We have to stand up against that. The second one that I had was the homosexual movement and the lie that the devil puts out there that's a Goliath lie that homosexuality is just an alternate lifestyle. We really have to fight that giant. And I'm just going to quickly say three things that I really think we need to teach our children. One is that homosexuality is not an alternate lifestyle. It is a sin. We have to keep saying sin from Romans chapter 1. Those who do this and these things are worthy of death. And not only those who do them, but those who consent to that sin. And that's what Romans 1.32 says. So we have to teach that it's a sin. We have to teach that it's not genetic. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that I'll go into classrooms, and this is another example of our own family, Um, taunting. I'll go into classrooms sometimes and women and teenage girls especially will say, but I just think that they can't help it. I just think that they can't help it. I just think it's genetic. That's blasphemous because that's not what the Bible says and that's not, and the Bible's very clear about it. So we have to, to show our children, stand up against that giant and say, our United States of America have put millions of dollars into a search for a homosexual gene and it cannot be found. But we already knew that before they put the millions of dollars into it because we trust God. And we're going to stand against that giant. It's it's not very popular, and um, we may have to go to jail one day for it. But we have to stand against that giant. And then um, we have to to teach our children. Maybe there are four things, but, but the next one that we have to be sure that we teach them is that experimentation with homosexuality cannot define you. If you have experimented with it or been tempted by it, don't just say, well, that's the way I'm going to live my life as a homosexual. We can't do that. We have to, 
we have to realize that because it's a sin, of course, this point is built on the previous one, because it's a sin, and because we have the history of hundreds and thousands of people who have repented of the sin and come out of the sin, we know it is not genetic. We know it is a sin. And so we can't, can't let it define us. I know young people who say, well, I really didn't want to be a homosexual, but I'm a homosexual. No, that's not true. If you don't want to be a homosexual, don't be one. Repent of that S-I-N. It is a sin, and it is a sin of which we can repent. I'm going to let you read in a second. I want to go ahead and say that the next big giant that I think of in our world today, and we like to just gloss over this one because it's getting old and it's been in the news so many times, but we're still killing over a million babies every month. 58 million children we've killed pre-birth since 1973, Roe v. Wade, and it is, we can cannot, we cannot call that homicidal holocaust a pro-choice movement. That's too innocent a, a term for it. We cannot call it a reproductive right. This is not a liberty. This is a holocaust that's occurring in America, and we can't decide, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to be quiet about it. We still have to be David and say, is there not a cause? And, of course, the cause there would be the preservation of life, the, the, the fundamental, sacred preservation of life. And finally, uh, I want to mention that one big giant in the religious world today is the lie that that knowing truth, that saying I can know truth is unloving. We have to get over that lie. God has said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He says, sanctify them, John 17, by thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is truth, and we can understand it. You know, the devil would like to mix us all up about what to do to be saved, about the nature of the church today. He would like to mix us up about things. But that is a, a devil's Goliath that he puts in front of us. And we as God's people have to say, is there not a cause? And it's the eternal salvation of our own souls and the souls of our children and the souls of those we love around us. So those are four big societal giants that we have to, about, against whom we have to really stand and we have to say, is there not a cause with David? Okay, do we have a comment? Yes. Genevieve, do I obey God or man? We have to ask ourselves. Tolerance is being taught when it comes to sin. Stephanie, another giant in our society at least is that all truth is relative. And she probably put that one right before I said it because that was that was the one that I just said, right? I think that is a giant, that we cannot know truth. And I've said this before, but I was in this home in Alaska teaching, and I was teaching about, and, and maybe you've already heard me say this, but it was just a powerful um, illustration of this of this societal giant. I was teaching about how to be saved, and I was... Uh, staying in the home with people that would give you the shirt off their backs. They loved people. They had daily family Bible time. They were faithful in attending the services. They were very benevolent people in the community. They were people that I loved already just by having known them. But when we came to the point about what a person has to do to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of the saved people, 
this person said to me, Cindy Colley, that's the most unloving thing I've ever heard. Are you telling me that my friends who are benevolent, who are loving, who are training up their children in morality, who are standing in the pro-life marches, who are some of the best moral people that I know. Are you telling me, Cindy Colley, that that these people are not a part of Christ's kingdom just because they haven't been baptized? And because they maybe they have, but they, they didn't do it in submission as knowing that it was for the remission of sins. Are you telling me that these people are not among the saved? And my answer to that was, is there not a cause? But specifically, under that framework of is there not a cause, what if, what if I really believed Jesus when he said, he that believeth, and is baptized shall be what if i really really believed that what if i believed peter through the inspiration of the holy spirit when when he said baptism does also now save us what if i really believed that and and what if i believed peter and the apostles in acts 2 when when those people were hurting I mean, they were hurting in their hearts, pricked in their hearts. And they said, what is it that we can do to resolve our sin? And Peter said, Peter and the rest of the apostles said, repent and be baptized for the remission or forgiveness of your sin. What if I really internalized that and I really believed it? What if I believed Ananias when the apostle Paul was converted and he said, arise and be baptized washing away your sins? What if I really believed that people had sins until that baptism to wash them away? And what if I really believe Galatians 3, 27, where it says that's the way that we can be clothed with Christ is to be, is to be baptized. And without baptism, we don't have that covering where when we're presented to God, he looks at us as Christ, as pure as Christ. And what if I believed, finally, Romans 6, 3 and 4, and I could go to many more, but what if I believed Romans 6, 3 and 4? You know, Calvary is all about love. It's all about love. And what if I believe the way that we access the blood, the death at Calvary? What if I really believed that the way we access it is by baptism? That's what Romans 6 says. Know you not that so many of you as were baptized were baptized into his death. What if I thought that like that scripture teaches that baptism for the remission of sins was the way that I can touch the blood of Calvary, which is the epitome of love. So I asked this woman, I said, what if I really believe those things? If I do would it be loving not to say them to people who had not been baptized into Christ? She said, I'm going to think about that for a little while. That's what she said. And then when she delivered me to the airport and I was ready to get on a plane, she said, so I did think about it. And she said, if you really believe all of those things, you would have to say them. That's David here. He's saying, is there not a cause? 
And he just said things that he had to say. So does that mean he didn't love Eliab? No, it meant he loved Eliab and he loved all of God's family. And he knew that there was a cause. And so that is a huge Goliath that is in front of us. That truth is relative, that we can't know truth, and that that we are unloving if we attempt to show people the exclusive nature of salvation from the New Testament and the way that we access the cross of Christ, which is love. Okay, do we have comments about those Goliaths? Any more comments? Other giants, homeschooling is backwards, viewing pornography is normal, and there is such a thing as safe premarital sex. And that was from Stephanie. Those are, those are, and I picked four, but those are societal giants. And we have to say, stand back with David and say, is there not a cause? Because those giants are taunting us, and they're taunting our God, and they're reproaching our church, and they're making fun of the Bible. So we have to stand and say, is there not a cause? Now, Saul's taunting is, uh, what verse is Saul's taunting is? All right, let's read Saul's taunting from verse 33. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Okay. So, Flory, what is our New Testament passage that we teach our children to come back with when somebody says, what do you know? You're only 15. What do you know? You're just a kid. What do you know? You, you, who, who are you to stand up against? I, I'm a Ph.D. Who are you to stand up and tell me that God is real? Really? So what verse do we... Do we take our children to and dissect? Um, that would be First Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in the word, in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so we dissect that verse. I know that uh, Hannah takes that verse off into girls' purity days and just dissects it and, and says, we got to say with David, is there not a cause? And we do it by being this kind of example. So I want us to move on a little bit, but go ahead and be making your comments, and we will come to those. The, The next point that I really wanted to make is that mockers always die, just like everybody else. Those who are taunting God die. And then what happens to their knees? They bow down. Their knees are, are going to bow one day. And we read that in Isaiah 45, 23. Write that down and read it later. Romans 14, verse 11. Philippians 2, verse 10. Goliath was just about to die. And not only was his head going to be chopped off his physical body, but his knees were going to bow before Jehovah. And he was going to proclaim that Jehovah was God. You know, just as loudly as his taunting was going to be his confession, but um, he just didn't know it yet. And then we have, we called for uh, how we know that God has a sword too. And I listed some of those verses, and I think what we're going to do, we may read one or two of them, but I think we're going to make a list of those sword verses so that we can move on. And the verses that I had, and there are more, uh, there are especially more that maybe no, don't say the four words in that order, the sword of the Lord. But there are many that say, uh, God gave this nation a sword, or I will, 
I will kill you with my sword or something along those lines. But if you make a list, I would include Judges 7, verse 18. I would include 1 Chronicles 21. And there are two verses there, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12 and verse 16 that talk about, one talks about the sword of the Lord, and the next one says the angel of the Lord had a sword drawn in his hand over Jerusalem. So that is talking about the carrying away into captivity. Isaiah 34, verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. That's a prophecy there. Isaiah 66, verse 16, by fire and by his sword, the Lord will plead. Jeremiah 12, verse 12, the sword of the Lord will devour. Jeremiah 47, verse 6, O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere you be quiet? Ezekiel 21, verse 3, I'll draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and I will cut from you the righteous and the wicked. Ezekiel 21, verse 5, I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. And Ezekiel 30, verse 25, I will put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon. Did you have some more, or is that, is that think that about covers it? Okay, we have, you could pick some more, but I want us to move on now to the amazing escape in Daniel verse 3. I think I've told you before, this is one of my, the most amazing scriptures about boldness. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It was my father's favorite passage in the Old Testament. And Daniel chapter 3, if you will just be turning there, we have faith's premise found in the first chapter in the in, in Daniel chapter 3 and Flory what verse did you find for faith's premise faith's premise oh yes verses 16 to 18 Shadrach Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So, Flory, go ahead and tell us what was happening there. The king set up this image. Tell us about it. The king set up this image, and he said, okay, we're going to play this music, and I want everyone to bow down. And when he played the music, everyone bowed down but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he brought them forth to them. I guess some people told him, and they brought them forth to him, and he said, okay, we're going to play this music again, and you're going to bow down. And when he did it, they refused to bow down. Okay, so she just read their answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're, we don't have to have a conference to answer you about this. If our God is God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us if he wants to from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand too, O king. But if not, we just want to be sure you know that we are not bowing down. And that's just, to me, I love that answer. I just love it. Our God can do anything he wants to do, but even if he chooses to take us on home to be with him, we're not going to bow down. We don't have to think about what we're going to do. So I, I looked a little bit over this um, one-handed here, so let me, let me get this out. I, I did a little research about where this happened, and I thought it was interesting. But, um, Flory, so your husband, Rafe, went in the Gulf War to both Afghanistan and Kuwait. 
Kuwait. And this is probably where this happened. Kuwait is probably where this actually happened. If you are over there as part of a tank battalion and you're scanning that landscape during that time of war, if you were doing that, you probably, um, uh, men, fired uh, taking out this bridge over the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River is or around it is where it all began, we read in Genesis. That's somewhere over there was the Garden of Eden, and nearby, uh, that is where the city of Babel was built. And later on, uh, that th they were building a tower to go to heaven, and they were making their bricks to build it there. And that place became known as Babel, which was later Babylon. And Babylon, of course, means confusion. And it was from this area of the world where Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldeans and Babylonians are similar, are descriptions for basically the same people. And so um, Abraham was called to leave this place. And centuries later, after countless warnings from God, you remember Israel was taken captive uh, by Assyria, and then Assyria was later taken over by the Babylonians, just as God has foretold. So if you're looking out over um, Babylon, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, they were probably somewhere near where the Tower of Babel was built. The question has been asked, and I thought it was interesting, was this brick kiln that, uh, was this a brick kiln that they were going to be thrown into, or that they were thrown into? Was it a brick kiln? And if so, was it made from some of the bricks left over from the Tower of Babel? You know, interesting question. Was the same area of the world? We really don't know that. But we do know that there was a, a brick, a fiery furnace there. It wasn't made out of wood. We know that because um, it would have been burned up. But so it was made out of some bricks and could have been bricks from the Tower of Babel. We really don't know that. But we do know that they were not careful to answer the king, and they said, we're not going to bow down. And at that time then, the king was filled with fury. And we, we said we were going to discuss a little bit about how that in What verse tells us he was furious? Well, I saw verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Was that the one? Yeah. Um, that was like they looked up at his face after they said that, and they thought, uh-oh, we are in trouble. <laughs> but they were trusting God. And so then in verse 24, it says Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. What does yours say? Astonished? Okay, he was astonished in verse 24. So his fury changed to astonishment when they fell down into the middle of the furnace and there was an extra man there with them and they were walking around unharmed, whereas the fire burned up the men who had thrown them in. So his fury changed to astonishment. And then by verses 28 to the rest of the chapter, his astonishment changed to faith. Now, I've known some people who got furious when presented the truth. I really have. And then they, they got into the Word, and they were astonished that, wow, the Word is saying to me things that I never knew it said. So their wrath at being presented the truth turned into astonishment. 
and then finally into faith, and they became obedient people. So that's kind of the process that this king went through. One time I remember I was talking to a woman about, uh, she was a, a, a very much a feminist, and she planned on someone else raising her children, basically leaving them all day, every day with someone else for someone else to raise. And I said, have you ever thought about how that, that really goes antithetical to what is taught in First in Titus chapter 2 and really in principle in Deuteronomy 6, how that, you know, we have to put God in our children all day long. And so if you're putting them in the hands of people who are are not believers who aren't part of the family of God all day long. Have you ever thought about how, oh, she became very angry, very angry at me. And in my mind, I was thinking, there's a cause here. There's a cause. And so she left and and she was very angry. But then she began to study her Bible and she became astonished. She became astonished that the Bible says in Titus chapter two, that, that we are to be keepers at home. And Deuteronomy 6 says we're supposed to teach our children four times during the day when they're standing, when they're walking, when they're sitting at the table, when they're going to bed at night. So all those, she, she began to be less angry and more astonished. And today, she is one of the most faithful advocates of raising our children ourselves, doing it ourselves, among my circle of acquaintances. And she has come back to me and said, thank you for making me mad. Thank you for making me mad. Now, I'm not, um, I, I'm not in the business of trying to make people mad. I, I really don't want to make people mad. And I know that I'm saying something right now that, that might. Um, it, it's one of the hardest things that we say today is that the Bible really does say that we blaspheme the word if we are not in whatever you take this to mean, we have to be keepers at home, which means workers at home, domestics, guardians of the home, keepers at home, stayers at home, really, is uh, a correct translation of that from the Greek. So that's an example of a woman who went from very from rage to astonishment to um, faith. And sometimes that's the process that people have to go through. I really wanted to make it to number 11. This king, I imagine, was pretty sure that there had been some kind of miscommunication when he called them in, or at the very least, they didn't understand the seriousness of the crime. So after imagining how it would feel to be standing as representatives of a people in captivity before the sovereign, before the king, who was filled with rage, filled with fury, read once again their answer to the king. And we're not going to take the time to read it here, but in the lines below, write the answer that you would expect from most people today who tout a religion of accepting you wherever you are. So stretch your creativity here. I know some people wrote in and said, I'm having a problem with that. I don't know what she means. What I mean is, if you were in the, the very populated field of subjectivism and relativism in our society today, I don't think my God would, or et cetera. That, I, I, I don't think we can absolutely know truth. Those kinds of things. What would your answer have been to the king in Daniel chapter 3. So what did you write in those blanks? I put down, God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart, and I know he knows I love him. God is love. He is all loving and loves me no matter what. We have to be tactful and relevant in order to share the gospel with others. We are in the world, and we can't reach souls by acting like we're above everyone else. 
can't reach these people if we're standing up and they're falling down. They're not going to think we're very, they're not going to want to listen to us. Here's my answer. And I just started with, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, like they did. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, of course we have reconsidered. Of course, we will be bowing down. It will be a departure from our tradition. But, but we've taken into account that we are not in Judah anymore. We know we are in your kingdom now. This is the year 3442. Another way to say it is 558 B.C. Why, our names have even been changed. We understand that you rule in this land. And we know that this culture is different. And it requires different kinds of appeals to the people around us. Oh, king, we, we can bow down. Because God knows our hearts, just like she said. Our God understands. Besides, he surely knows that we can never be a good influence on anyone, not even our fellow captives. If we are dead, we were actually hurting our influence because we were being stubborn. And they saw us as stubborn, as prideful, as holier than thou. So besides, our God would just would not punish us for giving you this kind of respect. So that doesn't that sound like our culture? These things that we've said, that's what that's what we would expect from the tolerant in our society today. Do we have other comments about that or anything else that we need to read? Luvenia, if it means that much to you, I suppose it won't hurt to bow down. We are under your authority, so we will reconsider. Very good. Now, I want us to think about these name changes for just a second. And if you, in the meantime, if you all have other things to say, say them. Daniel, his name was changed from God is my judge. Daniel means God is my judge. To Belteshazzar, which is the treasure of Baal, which is a false god. So, oh, that was a big taunting when they changed the names of these Hebrews that they had chosen to be pages in Babylon. And they changed his name from God is my judge to the treasure of Baal. Hananiah was Shadrach. And Hananiah meant the Lord has been gracious to me. Shadrach means, it's been translated three different ways. The inspiration of the sun or God, the author of evil, be propitious to us. Or let God preserve us from evil. We're not sure exactly, but his name was changed to a name that most likely disrespected Jehovah God. Mishael, he who comes from God. His name was changed to Meshach, which means he who belongs to the goddess Shishak. So they twisted his name a little bit. It's almost the same. But they took the glory from Jehovah and gave it to a goddess Shishak. And Azariah meant the Lord is my helper, and his, his name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, also a false god. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? So what do their original names, Flory, say about their mamas and their daddies? That they had much faith, and they really thought about these names before they gave them to their children, and they wanted to make it where it shows their faith in God. Yeah. Now, I wanted to name my son something that would show that 
his daddy and I had faith in God and also a name for him to live up to. So we named him Caleb. And Caleb was the one who, uh, the Bible says, he wholly followed the Lord. When people were standing in with a lack of faith, it says that um, Caleb said, wait a minute. He, hold, he had a different spirit within him. The Bible says he had a different spirit than the people around him when they were lacking faith. And then at the end when he was 80 years old and it was time to actually go get the promised land and he and Joshua were the only ones who had stood firm in their faith that Caleb said, give me the mountain. I really wanted, we called our homeschool mountainside homeschool because I wanted my children to have it firmly in them that they could say, give me the mountain. Let me do hard things for you, God. That's why, why I gave... Caleb that name and I chose Hannah's name we chose not just me but we chose Hannah's name in much the same way so we want them to look back and and know and and we want people to know in the world and and I know those Jewish names have become so popular now that probably people don't know why we named them that but we did name them that because of our our faith in Jehovah God so when I think about these names that these four Hebrews really, especially these three Hebrews that we're talking about in Daniel chapter 3 were given by their parents. I think their parents were people of great faith. And when I think about that, there were lots of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the only ones that were chosen to be pages, but they're the only ones we read about standing up here. So do you think that their response to what the king wanted them to do had something to do with the kind of early parenting that they had had? I think so. I think it's highly probable. We're looking at people whose parents named them these names of faith. And they, even though they're being called by Chaldean names that mean, I, I, just think about what if, what if I had to walk around and be called Cindy H. Jehovah or Cindy is idolatrous? Whoa, that would just... Every day long, I would be offended all day long. What if Caleb, that had the different spirit within him and said, give me the mountain, what if he had to be called, what if he had to be called lover of Hollywood? Or what if he had to be called promoter of abortion? Or what if he had to be called son of a homosexual? What if, you know, what if, I'm thinking about the, the equivalent of what they were having to be called then. I mean, just think about that. And think about, oh, just let's just pray that our children had the kind of parenting, will remember the kind of parenting that will make them stand up when the music is playing and the music is Hollywood and the music is homosexuality and the music is abortion and the music is uh, relative truth and the music is pornography and the music is... Um, a godless education system in our society that's going more, the music is the NEA, the music is, and we can go on and on. And when the music plays, do our children remember their real names? And are they going to be willing to stand up against that? Do we have comments? Yes. Um, this is for number 11. And says, perhaps we'll king after consideration. We think our God would understand how important you are in the world and would approve of our obedience to you. Obedience, I think, to you. Or your obedience. Down, okay. Yeah. Stephanie Kenyon, I have a feeling they would be saying we're so sorry for offending you. 
O king, I am sorry I did not bow down, but this is not my God. You can worship however you choose, and I will not object. Okay, they didn't get in the king's face and say, O king, you're an abomination. They didn't do that. They just said plainly, O king, they called him king. They were very polite in their response. But they did not give an inch. They did not, um, as Moses said to King Pharaoh, we're not leaving a hoof behind. When he said, you can go and worship, but leave your cattle, he said, not one hoof. You know, he, they, we weren't, we're not given. We're not given on this, O king. We respect that you are the king of this land. And they had shown themselves to be faithful and loyal subjects. But when it crossed the line where he was commanding of them to disobey God, they said, our God is able to deliver us. And I really, don't you hope Ali'i will be that kind of boy? And I think he will. I think he will. So um, we're going to go back and finish up the comments. But I want us to just close with Hebrews 11. Um, Hebrews 11, there were 45 occurrences in my counting. I think you got 34. Yes, 34. So it's going to be very subjective. You're just going to count. I counted all of, I counted one for each of the things at the, at the end where it said, um, it, it lists there at the end. Um, I did re- a recount today and came up with words. With words okay. Okay. So I counted one for each when it says in wanderings, in, in the wilderness, in goat skins, being destitute. I just, I counted one for each of those, but there are many of, for some of those, there's lots of those. So when I did that, I came up with 45, but it was just good to count because it gets us in that chapter and makes us know that God really means that he is going to provide a way of escape. So then um, the quick list from the bottom of page 67, um, we won't comment a lot on these because I want to get your comments and then our closing prayer. But Matthew 9, verse 2, um, Jesus commended the faith of those who brought the sick of the palsy. Matthew 9, verse 22, the woman with the issue of blood, was it, her faith made her whole because Jesus said that. Matthew 9, 29, he commented on the faith of the blind men. Now, some of you had trouble with Mark 1, and I really, uh, you were ahead of me, so I really wasn't looking so, I, I really didn't search so well at the time you were asking that question, but I believe our prime, our prime example, really our only example where Jesus commented was Mark 1, verses 40 and 41. Um, can you read those for us, Lori? Are you in Mark 1? Can you get to Mark 1 real quick and read verses 40 and 41? Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be, be cleansed. I am willing, so you be cleansed. So here we have a man who came to Jesus and made a statement of faith. That was a statement of faith that he said, if you want to, Lord, you can heal me. So he had faith there, and Jesus answered his faith by saying, I will. I do want to do what you have said. And I believe that was an, um, 
that we can infer from that that Jesus was responding to a statement of faith there. And then I also had Mark five thirty six, um, uh, Jairus' daughter there, and the statement "Just believe." Mark seven verse twenty nine. For this saying, he said to the woman of Tyre, the daughter had, uh, and then um, we read of a, of um, Matthew in Matthew fifteen twenty eight. We read a similar statement, um, which you didn't have to go read, but I had that marked. And then in Mark 9, verses 23 and 24, the man whose son had an evil spirit displayed his faith there. Did you, um, is that pretty much what you had? Yes. I think some of them I wrote back here. Mark 9. Yes. Okay. Well, I had 19 for this generation, 24. Okay. Well, that's this is kind of a subjective one too. But um, I was just searching for the ones specifically where Jesus said something about faith, and sometimes you had to pull from it. So uh, our lists aren't probably going to be exactly alike on those. So, wow, we we rushed through it tonight, but but it was a great study. Now, do we have more comments? Um, no. All right. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I uh, Every time I say this, but this, this is one of my favorite ones because we just picked some, um, wow, behemoth examples of people who stood when the going got really tough just out of sheer faith's sheer determination. You know, faith gives us uh, the strength that we need, obviously, from Hebrews chapter 11, it is the substance. It's what we have right now of the things that we hope for. And it is our belief in the our ability to claim every single promise of God. I want to challenge you to claim the promises because there is an escape that comes through faith. Today's dig a bit was about Acts 17 and how that those Bereans I don't think it's I don't think it's up yet as a matter of fact so look for it um the last dig of it is from Acts 17 and how that there were Bereans there that were called noble because they searched the scriptures to see if the things that the apostle Paul was saying to see if those things were true imagine that checking up on the apostles and that, that is what we do, is we get into the Word. And when we do, our faith just grows and grows and grows. And I hope that that's what Digging Deep is doing for you, because I, I know that it's, that's what it does for me. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very thankful for the great examples of faith that we have in Abraham, in David, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in the people who professed their faith to our Savior Jesus as he was walking this earth. We are so thankful, Father, for the promises that you give us. And we pray that you will help us to reach out in faith and grab those promises. To put our stake down in the promises. And to put all our eggs in that basket, Father. Because we know that there is security in the scriptures, there is eternal security in them. And we know that they have been proven both by the miraculous and by even by the secular world around us, by 
the fossil records, by the geological digs that have occurred, by we we just are, we know and we are sure that you are the God of the universe, that you created this world in six days and that the Bible is your word. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to realize that in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son and given us the written word so that we can know how to get to heaven. Help us not to ever be lazy in our study of your word, but help us to be diligent and help us, Father, to bring as many people with us as we can because that we know that not only are the and the unspeakable eternal blessings come through a study of your word but we also know that our temporary happiness our fulfillment here in this life our happy marriages our successful parenting our successful grandparenting our successful relationships in this world and our ability to overcome when things are hard all of that in this life comes from our study of your word so help us to be faithful in that we pray for our families we pray especially for those in our listening audience tonight who are struggling with sickness with those who have walked away from from you father we pray for those who need encouragement in their in the growing of their faith. Help us to be sisters to one another and encourage one another in every way that we can and to never be the Eliab who stands up and taunts those who are trying to do right. Help us to be the Davids who say, is there not a cause? We're so thankful for the cause that we have because of Calvary. And it's through the cross and through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Flory, for being with us. Very grateful. Thank you for having me. Y'all have a good week and a good evening. If you find yourself in Huntsville, Alabama, we'd love for you to worship with us at West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest. Sunday morning worship begins at 9 a.m., followed by Bible classes for all ages. We meet again at 5 p.m. for evening worship and at 7 on Wednesday night. This is a Digging Deep in God's Word production, a Bible study for women. For more information, visit thecolleyhouse.org.